faith-based agencies are an important part of our social safety net these days. And we face important legal questions about whether religious groups should be free to insist on receiving public contracts, but also be free to act based on religion when that may be to the detriment of the people being served. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 18th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Isha now continues her conversation with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Good to be back with you. Let's start by talking about the current state of abortion in the U.S. The states of Mississippi and Texas have enacted laws that prohibit abortions and infringe on women's constitutional rights in ways not permitted by Roe v. Wade. There are indications that the Supreme Court may soon overrule Roe v. Wade, allow these laws to stand, and thus limit or even eliminate women's right to choose abortion. So to begin with, how common is it for the Supreme Court to limit or eliminate a constitutional right after it's already been established? Well, it's not that common, but it certainly has happened in the past. One of the examples I could give is that the Supreme Court had declared that the death penalty is unconstitutional as a form of cruel or unusual punishment, and then Mm -hmm. at some point later changed its position, imposing some limits on when the death penalty could be imposed, but allowing it again. And certainly in the area of reproductive health care, the Supreme Court has repeatedly tweaked and revised the rules about how we should understand the freedom to choose to end a pregnancy. So I think while it's not common, it certainly does happen. And certainly we've been receiving signals for quite a while that the Supreme Court, especially with the current makeup, is receptive to arguments that the right to choose abortion should be limited, that the Constitution provides less protection uh, for the freedom to choose to end a pregnancy than the court has said in previous generations. The Texas law has another feature that appears intended to evade court challenges. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Texas law is very unusual uh, in, in many respects. But a key feature is that it has been designed and the the authors of the bill have been explicit in congratulating themselves on their effort to come up with a design of a law that would be very difficult to challenge, a law that was designed to limit constitutional rights, but to thwart the ability of people whose rights would be restricted to actually challenge it and force the state of Texas to justify this limiting of the constitutional right to end a pregnancy. And the way that the the law is designed to work is to give permission to members of the public who don't have any personal relationship to a person who's pregnant and who's considering ending the pregnancy, and to invite them with the dangling prospect of a $10,000 bounty to bring an action against healthcare practitioners who might provide abortion care, and to make it as a practical matter impossible for 
a person who wants to end a pregnancy to receive that service. The key element of this design is to deputize anyone and everyone, no matter where they may live or be, and with no connection at all to the individual person who might be seeking medical care, and invite them to interfere with the person seeking that care. Usually, under our legal system, a person may not initiate a a legal case, um, may not charge somebody and go into court and force somebody to go into court unless they have some direct relationship with the situation, unless they personally would be harmed in some way, that prospect of being harmed is what gives a person usually um, the ability to go into court. So this is a radically bizarre structure. And again, it, it was designed this way to make it very difficult to challenge. And what we have seen is that this Supreme Court seems shockingly potentially receptive to that design. We'll have to see. They haven't ruled yet. But the potential implications of allowing that kind of legal arrangement to persist uh, is very wide-ranging. And there's been lots of commentary about other types of laws that might be designed the same way to block people's ability to exercise constitutional rights if the Supreme Court allows this to remain in place. The Supreme Court has allowed this Texas law to remain in effect while its constitutionality is being considered. If the law is allowed to stand, how could that affect the rights that LGBTQ people have won, including marriage equality and the decriminalization of gay sex? Well, this is a really good question, and Lambda Legal and other organizations have brought these questions to the Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court to consider them in the context of Texas's abortion law, making clear that there would be threats to all sorts of constitutionally protected rights, any right potentially that members of the public oppose other people exercising could be at risk. And actually, one of the examples that has gotten some public attention was flagged by California Governor Gavin Newsom, who Mm -hmm. said that he will suggest that the California legislature model a law on Texas's law, but about gun rights to deputize members of the public to bring legal actions to block people who are trying to exercise their Second Amendment rights to obtain weapons. The analogous situation might be to go against legal gun merchants, you know, gun shops or gun shows to interfere with people's ability to purchase firearms and use firearms in ways that we have understood to be constitutionally protected. But certainly the same thing could be done targeting LGBT people, same-sex couples, or, you know, similarly, um, transgender folks seeking access to public facilities or, or medical care. Really, the consequences are limitless if you think of it that way. It really is a profound distortion of the way our legal system is supposed to work. And so I think the stakes are very high. It is true that we have seen the federal courts, especially with these ultra-conservative or really reactionary federal judges, treating reproductive health care and abortion in particular as something in a category all its own. And so sometimes we've seen court decisions that limit the freedom to access reproductive health care that then don't get applied in other areas. So I don't think it's automatically true that if the Supreme Court allows this kooky, crazy Texas law to stand, that other laws would be allowed to stand as well. 
but we should be very, very concerned about it. And in fact, we should be very concerned about it uh, if the court were to allow this to stand with respect to abortion access and then say other rights are different because healthcare is, is healthcare and people should be free to make their own healthcare decisions and treating abortion as different constitutionally, well, there's not really a good justification for that. And that itself would be more bad court decisions in an area that's already fraught. There's some level of feeling among the public that if the Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade, it will be because so many of the Supreme Court justices are Catholic and because the Catholic Church opposes abortion. And a lot of people think that this would amount to the justices imposing their religious beliefs on the American public. Do you think there's truth in that feeling? Well, I definitely think that there are many people who do feel that way. So there's truth in that people feel that way. From a legal perspective, I think there sometimes is a consistency between criminal laws or other laws that we have and particular religious beliefs or religious doctrine. And that doesn't mean that the particular rule is only a religious rule or is an imposition of religion. And the abortion area uh, has certainly illustrated this point. There, there are criminal laws against theft and against violence of various types, and those criminal law rules are consistent with some religious rules as well. And enforcing those rules that cause one person to be protected from harm caused by another person does not mean that those rules are an imposition of religion just because there may be a coincidence between, um, and by coincidence, I, I don't mean randomness, I mean consistency or harmony between those rules. I, I think the other point that's very important is that the Catholic bishops and some of the other leaders of the Catholic Church certainly are very vigorously opposed to abortion rights and also generally speaking, oppose contraception and various other types of health care that many people find to be quite important and want to be able to choose for themselves. Uh, but there's a diversity of views among American Catholics, certainly, and there's a diversity of views among American Catholics who are judges. And I think of, of the late Justice Brennan in this regard, who himself identified very uh, strongly as Catholic, and yet was among the more liberal justices and felt very strongly that his own personal religious views were not to be imposed on the American public, that his role as a justice was very different, um, and that his job was to enforce the Constitution in a way consistent with the Founders' principles and the principles that have guided us so well over many, many generations, including in particular the separation of church and state, uh, that everybody uh, must be free to exercise their own conscience, whether they're a person of faith or not, and that the court system and the government as a whole should not be in the business of enforcing particular religious doctrines. So I, I think that is a very important principle, you know, and and that said, it's also true and it's somewhat self-evident that the current majority on the Supreme Court, um, it's made up of justices who were known for their anti-abortion views that were very public uh, in opposing the constitutional right to choose abortion. And the Trump administration, like some Republican administrations before that, was quite explicit about selecting candidates for all of the federal courts, and in particular the Supreme Court, 
for people who oppose that particular constitutional right. I think that's quite deeply problematic. And as a result, we do have a situation where many members of the American public do see a majority of members of the current Supreme Court as acting based on their religious beliefs. That's, you know, that's very problematic because the Supreme Court is able to be effective, if it's effective, by the agreement of the American public. It's quite important that the American public view the court as an authority on the law and respect the guidance and and the direction and the rules given to us by the court. When the Supreme Court is too far out of step with the American public, we can have real problems. And I think this is something that our current Chief Justice John Roberts is very aware of, and he's he's spoken about it. It could be a real problem for him as a leader of the court and for the court as an institution if the court comes to be perceived even more than it already is as too extreme, too motivated by particular religious beliefs, and acting to impose beliefs on the American public. I mentioned the late Justice Brennan, but of course, President Biden identifies publicly as a devout Catholic, and he believes in the constitutional freedom of a person to make her own decision whether or not to continue a pregnancy. He has spoken about the importance of separating his own personal religious commitments from our Constitution, and I think his leadership on that point could prove to be very important in the, in the next couple of years. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. There's another religious liberty case going on. The Supreme Court is considering whether the state of Maine should be required to pay tuition for students at religious schools. Tell us about that. Yes, well, I'll start by saying that the area of school funding, of taxpayer funding of various sorts of things to help private religious schools, it's been a very complicated area of constitutional law and It's been an evolving area of constitutional law. So I think I know better than to try to predict exactly what the Supreme Court may do with this particular case out of the state of Maine. But the the issue has been in the past whether taxpayer programs could provide things like school lunches or school bus service or non-religious textbooks or other sorts of things that public schools receive whether those same things could be provided to religious schools. We have rules in this country that all children must attend a certain amount of school, and public schools are to be provided for that purpose, but it is permissible for parents to send their children to religious schools as long as the religious schools provide certain basics so that every child receives enough basic education to be able to function in our society. And the idea there is that we're a republic that depends on educated voters and that it's not 
fair to children if their parents interfere with their ability to get a basic education. So we have that starting context. The situation in Maine is that in certain parts of the state that's sufficiently rural, that there's not enough students for it to make sense for the local communities to set up a high school, uh, a public high school. So the schools that are available are religious schools, and they include significant amounts of religious education with the other subjects, and they require payment of tuition. So some parents in Maine have sued saying that they should be able to get tuition support in a way that's similar to what their neighbors might receive to send their students to private schools that are not religious. But you see, this bumps up against one of the important parts of a body of law called the Establishment Clause cases that says that, and this goes back to the beginnings of our country, that taxpayers must not be forced to pay for the religious education or the spreading of religious views of other faiths. That's part of the wall of separation between church and state. So it's one thing to provide police or fire protection for churches or religious schools, or maybe things that are not religious like bus service uh, or school lunches. But to have taxpayer money go to pay for education about religious doctrine, that has been an area that just a few years ago would have been very clear that no, (laughs) you know, the students may have tuition support to attend schools that are not teaching religion, but it, but not to pay the tuition to re- receive education about religion itself. The fact that in the, the recent oral arguments, there were questions that at least seem to suggest that this Supreme Court, our current Supreme Court, with three justices that were selected by the former president, um, that they are receptive to arguments that taxpayers must pay for religious education, I I wouldn't have believed it a few years ago. And so it is one marker of how far this court seems to be willing to go. We don't have the decision yet, but seems potentially willing to go to take apart that wall uh, wall of separation between church and state and to require that religious entities be treated the same as non-religious entities, even when that means taxpayer funding to advance religion. That would require taxpayers to pay for the exercise and education about other people's religions. You know, a few years ago, I would never have thought we would be at this place, but we'll see what the court does. It's at the moment, we don't know. It seems that anytime we hear that someone is being treated differently, it's discrimination. We see it in a COVID vaccination context and also with religious people claiming to be victims of discrimination. Tell us about the difference between different treatment and discrimination. That's a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked that. In discrimination law, we aim to compare things that are similar, or I should say similar with respect to whatever is in question. (laughs) So for example, if we have two people that are both, would both would like to be hired for a particular job, if one person is denied the job because they aren't qualified, well, that might be different treatment. They're denied the job, but it's not discrimination if they were not similarly able to do the job. And we can see this in lots of different contexts. So if a program is set up, let's say, to provide food 
to people that are hungry, then sometimes access to that program would be limited to people who are very low income, who need that food. Programs like food stamps operate that way. And if somebody is turned away because actually they make a good income, then that's not discrimination. Those two people are not similarly situated. Sometimes in discrimination cases, we have questions. We have to do an analysis to decide, well, what is it that is being, what's relevant here? What are the, what are the criteria that determine whether a person is qualified for a job or a program or to receive a benefit or not, and then to treat like people or like organizations in a similar way? And if two organizations are similarly qualified and one is turned away, then you ask why. And sometimes if we can see that the reason was something irrelevant, and especially if it was something that's irrelevant, that's quite common and, and problematic, that tends to treat a particular group unfairly, and there's a non-discrimination law that applies there, well then, you know, that's discrimination and that may be unlawful. We can have discrimination and no law to protect people. I mean, that certainly is a reality for LGBT people in certain parts of the country. Uh, sometimes there's a law that says people have to be treated the same in this situation, regardless of what their sexual orientation or gender identity might be. And in other situations, no such law applies. And so you could have discrimination, but no remedy. So we have to do some comparing uh, whenever somebody is rejected in a situation where they think they should be eligible for whatever it may be, and see whether the person or or the institution that rejected them had a legitimate reason for doing that or did not have a legitimate reason for doing that. We've talked a lot in this series about the erosion of the separation of church and state in recent years. What would it mean if the Supreme Court forces the state of Maine to pay religious school tuition? Well, it would mean that one of our important principles about separating government from religion, we've really crossed a, crossed a line that just a few years ago we would not have expected to cross. And I don't know what might come next. Uh, among the concerns that we could have is the case in front of the Supreme Court now came out of Maine and a situation in which there was not a publicly available school for students to attend. The students have to attend a private school because that's all that is available in the area. If the Supreme Court accepted the claim that taxpayers must pay tuition for religious schools there in Maine in the rural environment where there is not a public school available, we might expect there to be lawsuits demanding taxpayer funding for religious schools in urban areas where there is a public school available. If that were to happen, that probably would mean even less funding going to the public school, the public schools that in some areas already are starved for funding, the public schools that already sometimes have to compete with charter schools that are set up with taxpayer money. Now, they're generally they're not religious schools if they're receiving taxpayer money, but charter schools that are not subject to as many non-discrimination rules and other rules as the regular public school. So the regular public schools already have to compete for funding. Um, if we were to face the question 
of taxpayer funding being demanded and required to go to religious schools as well, then I think the public schools would have even a harder time. And among the things to keep in mind here is that the public schools generally have to, they're part of government and they're accountable to the constitution, including the equal protection clause and also the, the First Amendment, free speech rights. It means that students have certain rights to receive information in a public school, and they have certain rights to be treated equally, to not face discrimination, including bullying and harassment based on who they are. Students also in public schools, and these are, these are matters that Lambda Legal has litigated over the years, gender nonconforming students, gender-fluid students have a First Amendment right, a free speech right to express themselves the way they wish to, to not conform to certain gender stereotypes, for example. Those freedoms are not necessarily protected the same way in religious schools. So I think there's multiple different sorts of problems just considering schools if the Supreme Court were, were to take that step. But we, we should look beyond the school context as well, because in our society, many types of social services and medical services are provided by religiously-based organizations. And many of those organizations include a certain amount of exercise of religion in the way they do their work, in the way they provide services. So there are important arguments underway today about the extent to which the federal government or a state government can require religious institutions not to discriminate if they want to receive government grants or government contracts to do work for the government. You know, this is an idea that actually has been tremendously important to the development of our country. The idea that the federal government should be free to pick and choose uh, companies or agencies to do work for the general public, uh, whether it's building or providing goods that are necessary for the government to function, or to provide various types of services for members of the general public who, who are in crisis or need. And this can be anything from food banks and, and nutrition support, to emergency services, to addiction recovery, to anti-violence supports, um, to emergency shelters and housing, all kinds of things. Faith-based agencies are an important part of our social safety net uh, these days. And we face important legal questions about whether religious groups should be free to insist on receiving public contracts, but also be free to act based on religion when that may be to the detriment of the people being served. And this, this is a large area. The law seems to be evolving before our eyes in this area. And if the Supreme Court were to say religious schools are entitled to insist on public tax dollars, then we have to wonder what other types of religious agencies might be newly able to make similar arguments. We've run out of time again, but we'll pick this up next time. Thanks, Jenny. My pleasure. That's it for this 18th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, 
More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.